Hi, I'm Mark Roderick. Coming up on Front Row, recent polling raises red flags for President Biden and the Democrats. A state court strikes down North Carolina's voter ID law, and a generation of American men give up on college. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, political analyst Joe Stewart, Jonah Kaplan with ABC News 11, and Donna King, editor-in-chief of Carolina Journal. Mitch, why don't we begin with President Biden's declining poll numbers? President Biden's poll numbers took a massive hit immediately upon that botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. His supporters thought that after the initial shock, we'd start to see a climb, but his numbers remain in really poor shape. I'm just going to run through a few of the recent polls. The Quinnipiac poll, the recent one, showed that roughly 70 percent of voters are dissatisfied with the situation that we're in, 45 percent. Uh, very dissatisfied, only 3% very satisfied with the course of the nation. And as for the president's numbers himself, in the low 40s, very bad shape. Reuters has him at 44% approval. That's the lowest he's had since he's become president. If you look at the Harvard-Harris poll, Biden is now in a statistical dead heat with Donald Trump today in terms of favorability. And if you look at the Gallup poll, he's at a record low, 43%. Uh, with 53% disapproval, so 10 points underwater. Completely, his support is among the Democrats who haven't met about 90% approval. Right. Republicans, They're holding him up. Republicans at 6% approval. And then the independents, which is where it's really bad news for him, he's at only 37% support. Your take on the polls? Yeah, presidents usually suffer the most when the economic situation of the country is bad, and people hold the president accountable for that. Th this isn't at play, it wouldn't seem to me. Uh, the economy, relatively speaking, is in pretty good shape. So you would think the president was in good standing with the American people. I think this is one of those situations where, in politics, you can have one great big bad thing that really hurts you, or a lot of little things that hurt you. And I think the president's just had a string of bad incidences over the last several months, issues relative to the border, Afghanistan, as you mentioned. I, I think some still dissatisfaction relative to the state of the country and its response to COVID-19. The question is, does the president become a dead weight to other Democrats Can looking rebound, to run in 22? I, you know, presidential popularity swings widely, can be as much as a 60% swing from favorable to unfavorable in the course of a presidential administration. I, I think if there are trouble signs in the economy, it's only going to get worse for the president. Immigration is a huge issue, though. This is a crisis. It's not just about reform. Form, really. It is, and it's becoming more of a crisis for people regardless of their political spectrum. It used to be sort of a Republican-driven crisis. Now, really, everybody's concerned. But what we're really seeing in these numbers, I think, is worth noting, is this really speaks to what's going to happen to Congress in 2022, because generally, when the, when the president's numbers are low, that hurts him in there the midterms. There needs to be five seats for the Democrats right. to lose Congress. And, and with 37 percent of independents approving him, and in that same Gallup poll that Mitch mentioned, uh, only 20 
87% of Americans approve of what Congress is doing, 69% disapprove. It really, it really speaks to what's going to happen in the midterms. Jonah, is the honeymoon with the press over, you think? With the press, maybe. Yeah. With, with Biden. I mean, the man's only been in office for nine months now, and let's not forget George They're W. Cutting Bush. Cutting the press off there. They, that thing with Boris Johnson there, in there was pretty bad. Uh, yes, it is. In and I will say, from my own experience, off. I had a lot of access to the Trump administration. I'm not going to characterize or judge their answers, but I was certainly able to ask them questions. I haven't had that access right now. I just will say this about poll numbers. In election season, we're taught now not to trust the polls. So when it's not election season, are they any more accurate? I don't know. And again, the man's been in office for nine months. So much can happen between now and January when it's a one-year anniversary. Even more can happen between now and election season for 2022. So if this is a stock, I just don't know that I'm buying it. This is a 21-point swing, though, Mitch. It is a major swing. He has dropped uh, 13 points in that Gallup poll just since June. Uh, now, Jonah is right that you can't read too much into it. A lot of things could change between now and November. But I think one thing that's telling from these polls is that one thing that had helped Joe Biden for a while was support for his policies on dealing with COVID-19. One of these polls showed him going under 50 percent for his COVID-19 policies. If that continues, he doesn't have anything going for And him. his strategists are worried about the independence. Donna, I want to talk about the voter ID sure. law. Yes, it's yes. Yogi Bear all over again. Deja vu. Deja vu Strike all over down. again. Sure, sure. Well, it's been going on since 2018. Well, this time uh, a Thir panel. Uh, this time a panel of three superior court judges uh, voted two to one to reject voter ID in North Carolina. Um, this is one of multiple lawsuits over voter ID ever since 2018, when uh, voters voted in favor of a constitutional amendment uh, to the Constitution adding voter ID. It's now been tied up in court uh, for three years. It, this particular suit was based on uh, the argument that voter ID was implemented or was was passed uh, as, a, as an effort to suppress the African-American vote and therefore was unconstitutional. Lawmakers have said, uh, you know, that it's absurd. They're going to appeal it. Probably going to end up at the Supreme Court, which already has another lawsuit uh, before it right now. That one is a different lawsuit. That one says that the General Assembly didn't have the authority in the first place to uh, pass voter ID and put it before voters uh, based on gerrymandered maps. And so if the judges agree with that, if the Supreme Court agrees with that, that puts into question all the laws passed during that time that General Assembly was seated, which is raises, regulatory reform, taxes, I mean, you name it. Uh, criminal law, all of that becomes at risk if the judges sit, agree that the General Assembly didn't have the authority to pass it in the first place. That ruling was broke down along party lines, though, two to one, right? There's a very important distinction that needs to be made because there's the constitutional amendment, which is the principle that there should be, you should need to present a photo ID to vote. Voters approve that, but it didn't spell out that amendment what kind of ID, how it would work, who would check it, all those things. The General Assembly then passed a law that defined it. That's what was struck down, not the principle. But and what I'm saying was two of the judges were Democrat, one was Republican, correct? That's right. Okay. I, but for voters to understand, and we're in trouble with the whole judicial system if we start labeling because judges. Politicized, though? 
I'm just. Do you I'm, think that was a political vote I, uh, ruling? I, I don't know that you could say that it was a political vote. Jurors often bring their philosophical bearings on the law and the uh, application of a particular thing to the Constitution. I think in this regard, there really are two things that are absolutely true. There is a troubled history in America of discriminating against people so that they could not cast a ballot. That that is a true part of American history. It's also true that Americans need to know that there's integrity in their elections and that there's a relatively sure. Way to guarantee that the person voting is actually who they represent, who they are. We just got to find a way to do this that isn't discriminatory, that accomplishes the goal of giving people confidence in elections. Mitch, do you view this as discriminatory? I mean, look, the, the voters voted for this, for, to have it in the Constitution. Well, the voters voted for it, 55% support. For and the principle. For the principle, but the, the law follows the principle. The issue is that you can have voter ID, and as long as you make sure that every registered, eligible voter gets an ID and you don't discriminate, you don't hurt particular groups, that it's going to, that it should fly. What happened in this case, the 2-1, and as you were correctly pointing out, two Democratic right. judges said that it was bad. The Republican uh, judge said it was fine. The two Democratic judges basically said, well, there's this long history of racial discrimination, and so even though we couldn't find it anywhere here, and there's no evidence, they admitted no evidence of any member of the General Assembly showing racial animus, it had to be there, whereas the Republican judge said there was not a scintilla of evidence of any racial discrimination. Okay, to be continued, Jonah, I want to talk to you about the Department of Education's uh, report about young men not uh, deciding to go to college anymore. This is really something because, and I, please, with all due respect to Donna, who's a very educated, wonderful person, I saw this as a hunch in college when, at least for guys, we we're like, oh, this is great. There's so many girls in college. Um, <laughs> but it, it's true. I mean, now, there right? are, yes, thank okay. God. <laughs> but what I'm, my saying in that is, is that, you know, it wasn't just a hunch. The facts now are there are more women in college than men a 60-40 ratio, and we could talk about why, we could talk about its implications. I think there are a variety of factors. One is there are more women in the workforce, and there are more, more women who want to be in the high-tech sector and who want to have these skills. There are also women who are pushing back getting married, so they want to push back having a family, so this traditional idea that only men are going to have a career also. And when you create that kind of competition, women are and, and potentially rightly so, because they're very smart, are outscoring and outperforming men. So if you're taking all these applicants together and you get all these high score people, you're gonna have more women there. The implications though are, if you have all these people, you know, women now coming into college and then pushing back, yes, it helps the, the workforce now, but if we keep pushing back families, the birth rate continues to fall, how are we gonna support a workforce in the future? Don, a lot of these young men are going to community colleges, though, right? We are seeing that. We're seeing a boost in that. And one of the things, and, and he's, uh, Joan is correct, that it's not just that men are not applying to college, they're not finishing. So um, of the kids who go, 65% of women finish, but, but less than 60% of men finish, even if they started. So one, we need to make sure that college campuses are welcome uh, to men, that the support structure's in there, that the culture isn't uh, you know, telling them to sit down and shut up, uh, and that we need to make sure that they have the skills that they need and the support they need to get all the way through. But you're right, a lot of folks are going to community college. It's quicker, uh, it's a hard skill. In many cases, it's a trade, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but COVID made, made a huge impact on did this, too. Did it accelerate the trend? Uh, I, I think it did. I absolutely accelerated the trend. A lot of times, one parent 
step back and had to stay home with kids because younger kids because schools were closed and a college age kid is taking classes online so in many cases either the classes didn't go well which happened to a lot of kids or they said hey I'm gonna take this year off and help support my family as much as I can because one of my parents has had to step back and and help homeschool the younger kids so COVID definitely accelerated that process it's what do we do right now and I think for those who maybe dropped out make sure they have a hard skill or a trade or have a path to go back and down the road make sure the culture really welcomes everyone. Mitch does the cost impact at the cost of college? Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, the cost rising at a higher level than inflation has been a big factor. We've seen, according to that report, that there are 1.5 million fewer people going to college now than five years ago, and 71% of that decline is men. So that's another reason that's pushing things more toward having more women than men in college. And, and one of the things about this that's very important is that a lot of people look at college today in a different way as not having the value that they were always taught that it did. Joe, put this in context. Yeah, I think to some extent, this is a, a demonstration of the success that colleges have had over the last 30, 40 years to promote women, to provide infrastructure, to encourage and to, and to give resources to women so that they could become uh, college students successfully. So some part of it in one of the reports I read, the challenge is that boys apparently are not as diligent in getting their high school transcripts as girls are in terms of the application process. But this will be a challenge as institutions of higher education still overwhelmingly led by men faculty overwhelmingly male, can there be infrastructure placed on college campuses to support boys where the political environment may say, well, wait a minute, why would we be doing this to seemingly a very entitled segment of the population when those resources might be better if it's helping women or students of color? John, to wrap this up in about 40 seconds. Well, in certain fields are still predominantly men, like engineering and in tech and things, and that's where we're we going to find a different balance. I will say also what COVID did is probably for these sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollar a year colleges and universities, if a lot of them are virtual, and even if they're not virtual, is the price worth the investment? And I think you're going to see the popularity of community colleges coming up because right, if you're a hiring manager, are you really going to decide someone who went to Tulane University and who went to Wake Tech Community College? If the Wake Tech has got the skill that I need, which is we need more masons and electricians and right. all these different things, okay. I think that's going to be more important. Okay, I want to talk about the General Assembly's week, Joe. Yeah, the negotiation between the House and the Senate relative to the state budget goes on. It looks as though, as Speaker Moore said, uh, look around. It's September and we're still here. So they're three months past the deadline, but it looks like the progress is being made to the extent the final decision that need to be made by what they call the corner offices, the House Speaker and the President Pro Tem, whose offices are on the front corner of the legislative building. Um, they'll have to rough the final, uh, uh, the smooth, the final rough edges of the budget. But then it appears the intention is to take that document to the governor and to see if it's something the governor might be willing to sign in an effort. I think in good faith, both the legislature and the governor want a signed budget. We'll see if the governor can go along with the package of tax cuts and paid uh, teachers and, and uh, uh, public employees, things that are very important to the governor. Uh, I, I don't know how that process will go. The expectation it may take a week or two for that before a final version of the budget goes before the General Assembly for approval. I think the intention of the Republican leadership is to avoid trying to overturn a gubernatorial veto because they may or may not be able to get those votes. Redistricting continues this week with public hearings around the state. A few bill, 
bills of interest as we start to wind down the legislative session, one relative to creating a regulatory sandbox for banking and, and insurance interests, uh, electronic notary, a bill to try to bring North Carolina in line with national standards, hit a road bump when a provision was inserted relative to disclosing certain facts about state employees relative to their hire, fire, dismissal, suspension. We'll have to get those things worked out. And then the North Carolina High School Athletic Association, okay. that kerfuffle, I think, has finally been resolved amicably by the legislature and by the leadership of that group. Donna, what have you been following? Um, I really like uh, what Joe mentioned about the regulatory sandbox bill. So, uh, Senate Commerce gave a thumbs up to this. Other states have done it. What it really does is sort of clear the runway for some innovative projects in the finance and in insurance industry. Uh, they can apply to what I believe is called an innovation council and say, hey, look, we've got this new product because inevitably private industry moves much faster than government. So this council can say, okay, yes, this meets consumer protections, it's innovative, and uh, then it'll send it to commerce and commerce will kind of allow it to operate under waivers so that it can move forward in the regulatory environment without some of the barriers and red tape that keep back other, other uh, industries and other businesses. So it'll be really interesting to watch to see what comes out of this because probably by the end of the year or so, we'll have about 12 states to do it. Your take? One of the most interesting things that happened on the Senate side, they devoted an entire hour to reminding people just how important Mark Bass Knight was to the state's political history. Right. He was the president pro tem of the Senate for 18 years, the longest serving legislative leader North Carolina has ever had, made a major impact for his coastal community and across the state, was a big advocate for uh, education, especially higher and education. Eastern North Carolina. Eastern too. North Carolina pitch, pitched a major bond that uh, got $3 billion flowing into higher education. So Mark Bastnight was uh, lauded on the floor of the Senate. He had passed away late last year. And among the people who was sitting in the audience watching, uh, along with everyone else, our governor, because our governor, Roy Cooper, used to be a Bastnight lieutenant. Jonah? Uh, back to the budget, just because that is probably the most important function of a state government, which is how to spend tax dollars. And I hate this expression, but I think it works here. They are going to try to have their cake and eat it, too, because the question now for the governor and Republicans, can you afford some of the programs the governor wants and also cut taxes? Because a year ago at this time, North Carolinians, and especially people on Jones Street, very worried that the pandemic was going to cut into tax revenues. Well, once again, we have like a $6 billion surplus. So could you give tax cuts, capital gains and all of this, and also fund Medicaid expansion. If they can find a way to do that, they may have their cake and eat it too. Okay, we've got to move on. Let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. We've already referenced redistricting. We have no new election maps, but that hasn't stopped at least a couple of state lawmakers from saying that they aren't going to run again, probably because of new election maps. We know of four state lawmakers at this point who are not going to run again in 2022. And at least in a couple of the cases, it's because the new election maps for their districts are probably not going to be favorable for them. How talking does about, that break down party talking about, uh, it, In both of the cases of the people who are not running again, they are Democrats who are in districts that once the new districts come out, might be a little less favorable for Democrats. We're talking about Senator Ben Clark, who's in Hope County, and also Representative Charles Graham, who's in Robeson County. Now, a lot of redistricting is already determined because of the population and the way the counties sit and the geography. So these folks are looking ahead and saying, I don't know what the map actually says, but I know what it's probably going to say, and it doesn't look good for me. Joe? 
Uh, over three million Americans now have uh, been added to the rolls of the Affordable Care Act, the, the uh, uh, Obam Obamacare, as a result of the extended period of enrollment and the subsidies, additional subsidies that were provided through the COVID relief product. We're 20 percent more people in these subsidized markets than the same time last year. We now have over 12 million Americans getting their health insurance through the Affordable Care Act uh, model, and over 80 million people getting either Medicare or the Children's Subsidy Health Insurance insurance as well. It, it, those increases are probably good for the insurance market. It helps people that are not otherwise covered to get care. But it does look as though we're starting to creep up in terms of the percentage of Americans being covered by some governmentally subsidized health is insurance. Is it sustainable? That is a question. I mean, a big part of the infusion of new people was the fact that the COVID relief package added more money to the Affordable Care Act subsidy. So people are getting, in effect, a subsidized rate for that coverage. We'll see if Congress has the wherewithal to try to continue that over the years. Jonah. I saw this story and I loved it. Out of the five people here at this table, we've got devices of phones and computers and iPads and tablets and whatnot. We probably got five people, 12 different chargers. Well, in the European Union, uh, some of the uh, lawmakers there are proposing to make universal chargers and saying, you know what, we should have one charger that fits every device. And it's getting steam. And you know who's against it? Apple, because they have their own lightning charger. And I just and think... the adapter business. That's correct. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. And, and if you... Well, and Europe, if they take the lead on this, let me tell you something. There are a lot of consumers who will say, oh, yeah, I want that too. One charger, one device for everything. And I think... We can rally support for that, right? No. <laughs> I think the market would drive that, I think. I won't be able to sleep tonight thinking to about it. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, one of the, we have new law on the books that allows, among other things, curbside pickup at ABC stores, which I think is really interesting in a post-COVID world. Also, a bill that was, um, that was led by uh, Tim Moffat in the western part of the state. has been signed by Governor Cooper. Um, so you can order liquor online, and you can take buy two beers at a state game or whatever it is. But the problem is, is can you get it? Because there's been a lot of upheaval in the ABC system, the Alcohol Beverage Commission, lately with empty shelves and shipping problems. Uh, suddenly, the ABC commissioner quit. Um, he's been under a lot of heat because uh, bars, restaurants, liquor stores just can't get what they need. So it's made a lot of people talk about uh, modernizing the ABC system, which this bill helps to do. But a lot of folks saying, look, do we really need this? Why can't we just let the free market decide uh, when and where it goes and how it sells? Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? My who's up, family and friends of Jeff Rigg, who was a Washington, North Carolina man, died after being hospitalized from a car crash. And his name has been attached to a new law that takes effect October 1st. It will allow people in a hospital to have a member of the clergy visit them. Uh, even if it's during an emergency or a pandemic. My who's down? Fans of food trucks in Farmville. Uh, the town of Farmville had an old law that said uh, if you wanted to operate a food truck, you had to pay a $100 annual fee. Well, they raised the fee because of some complaints from brick and mortar restaurants. So it went from $100 a year to $75 a day. And so wow. there's a new lawsuit challenging that. I didn't know okay. there was a market for food trucks in Farmville. <laughs> Joe? Uh, who's up? Uh, India announced this week, the health minister, that they're going to resume exporting COVID-19 vaccines. They had uh, stopped exporting it back in April when uh, 
They had tremendous trouble within India uh, to try to inoculate the 933 million adults that live in that country. Uh, the projection is that they'll be able to produce a billion doses of the vaccine and export it internationally by the end of this year. So hopefully that expands the effort to try to get COVID under control on an international basis. Uh, who's uh, down? We continue to have shortages in manufactured goods in America. I read a story this week where the automobiles are manufactured, but a component part like a chip is not available. So the finished, almost finished vehicles just sitting on a lot waiting for the arrival of the final product. Alcohol is a big factor in this. Also, I saw zippers. We have a shortage of zippers in this country. So something's got to be done where it's going to begin to impact our economy. Jonah. No shortage of zipper merges on the highway, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's up is uh, bipartisan support for Israel, at least for now. After a lot of noise earlier in the week, there was a vote of 420 to 9. Basically, uh, the squad voted against it. All the usual suspects. Yeah. Uh, okay. And uh, yes, so bipartisan support, 429, the defensive Iron Dome system, which protects uh, all of residents of Israel, Arab, Christian, what? Jew, uh, against the um, uh, these rockets from Hamas. Uh, what's down is bipartisan cooperation when it comes to police reform. Uh, negotiations breaking down, failing between Tim Scott, uh, the Republican from Tennessee, and uh, counterparts on the Democratic side. Donna. Uh, so up, I'm going to say new jobless claims. Uh, there were 351,000 people applying for unemployment uh, for the first time, and and that that is a record. And and I think it speaks to kind of the the end of some of the benefits that we're seeing uh, from, left over from COVID. My down the relationship we talked about a little bit earlier between the press and the White House. There was this bizarre incident in the Oval Office uh, this week where Boris Johnson took questions from the British press, but then the American press were shouted down when they tried to talk Staff to. To off. Biden, cut him off. They went, left the room, went straight to file a formal complaint. So the White House press corps filed a formal complaint um, over their lack of access to the president. Mitch, headline next week, my friend. Budget deal heads to Cooper. Will the details remain secret? Joe, headline next week. The negotiation between the legislature and the Cooper uh, administration is revealed, and it's not kept secret. <laughs> okay. Headline next week. President Biden holds lengthy news conference. Nah, I'm just kidding. Um, the headline next week actually is Democratic infighting continues to threaten Biden agenda. I think it's going to uh, impact the uh, 3.5 trillion. I think I don't. I'm not sure the 1.2 trillion gets through. I'm not sure. I would bet on anything. Yeah. I don't know. Headline yeah. next week quickly. Um, I think we're going to hear more about. There's about 1,100 uh, Afghan refugees that are going to be making a home in. North Carolina and these resettlement organizations are trying to gather furniture, supplies, food, clothes, whatever they need. Uh, and the, the fiscal uh, year ends the first. So they're going to be really working hard to get them settled. Okay, that's it for us. Thanks for watching. Great job, panel. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.